0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you
1: live.
2: Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, an anchor at Washington Post Live and co-author of the early 202 newsletter. Thanks so much for joining us today. We are talking about the importance of public service with former Congressman Will Hurd. Mr. Hurd, thanks so much for joining Washington Post Live again.
3: Hey, Leanne, it's great to be with you.
2: And a reminder to our audience, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any questions for Mr. Hurd, please uh, tweet at us at postlive. So, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us on such an important conversation. I want to start, you know, a little bit big picture and your thought process as a young person in their early 20s who graduated with a degree. Um, and could have gone to Silicon Valley to make a lot of money, but you decided to go into public service. You decided to join the CIA instead. Why did you do that?
3: Well, I, I did it because I thought it was going to be cool to recruit spies and steal secrets in exotic places. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was fortunate during my time at Texas a m University to have been exposed to senior leaders of the CIA, and they told these amazing stories, and um, I thought it was going to be awesome to to serve my country and in, in, in a unique way. And that's why I decided uh, to go into the CIA. And look, it, it, was, it was the best job on the planet, working on some of the most important national security challenges of the day, um, making sure that the US government is doing one of its most important um, responsibilities, and that's uh, defending the homeland, having an active role in that in places like India and Pakistan and Afghanistan and, and, and countless other places Uh, was awesome and I got to work with a group of people that were pretty amazing Um, when you're trying to stop terrorists from from blowing uh, people up or weapons nuclear proliferators from slipping a dirty bomb into the country uh, you don't get to say hey we don't have enough money we don't have enough resources we don't have enough time and that's not an option Uh, and you have to go out and 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 do your thing Ah, uh, with whatever resources you have, and so it was a great experience for me. Um, something that has uh, has impacted me, um, and the only reason I left was because I can thought I thought I can help uh, the country and the intelligence community in a different way, um, because I was frustrated with some of our elected officials.
2: So, staying with the CIA role for a little bit, did that help you uh, to appreciate the importance of? Working for the government for public service, especially when you were overseas in some of these countries in Afghanistan and Pakistan, as you said.
3: You know, one of the things that I think as Americans we take for granted we take for granted something as as simple and basic as democracy. Um, we we assume democracy is is always going to exist. And I I remember my my minor at, at in, in in college was in international studies, and I remember the first class I took. Was um, w- the first lecture was on the rule of law, and I'm like, I'm, you know, seventeen year old Will Heard is like the rule of law. Come on, of course there's rule of law. Why, why is why are we talking about the rule of law? It's that's so basic, you know, it's it's obvious. And and I was shocked that this was this was like our first lesson. And then I go live in places that doesn't have the rule of law, and and I realize how some of these 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 fundamental elements of of our governments, um, how how novel and unique they they really are, and so you know so the fact that I spend the majority of my career as an undercover officer in the CIA, CIA overseas, um, I had a new appreciation of the role of the United States in the rest of the world, uh, the role of our former government, and how how unique it is, um, and and we and we we forget sometimes people call people call American experiment. Because when we started this thing 246 years ago, um, nobody thought that it was going to work. And, and there hadn't been a democracy on our planet in 1800 years. The last one was Rome, and Julius Caesar screwed that up uh, when he became emperor. And there, there had been, it had been 60 years after us for another form of democracy to exist, it was Switzerland. And so there's only been 14 countries that have been a democracy over 100 years. Um, so this is still, we, while we take it for granted, um, this is still an experiment. And this experiment is is made to work uh, by men and women at all levels of, of government, not just in federal government, state, state and local governments as as well. But that experience that I had in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan, really made me appreciate the unique role the United States has in the world and the unique role our government has and how there are men and women um, that are working for crap pay that they can be making money in, in other ways and putting up with with less, um, less stress, um, but they do it in order to continue this experiment.
2: So there are some people we are, you know, less than a week away from the midterm election. Some people are saying that this election is critical for democracy. You have someone like Representative Liz Cheney, who was campaigning last night for a Democrat, also a former intelligence person, Alyssa Alyssa Slotkin, in Michigan, saying that this election matters more than any of the economic issues, anything else because of the democracy issue. Do you agree
3: of course, democracy is important. And and I think I think, you know, uh, every election we always talk about, this is the most important election. I think um, this election matters because um, of, I think it's 49 percent of uh, excuse me, I mean, it might be 53 percent, 53 percent of Democrats, it's like 51 um, percent. Of of Republicans and like forty nine percent of Independents and and y'all could fact check those numbers it's it's in the low fifties high forties um, people th- these three groups believe that democracy may not exist uh, for the next ten years um, that's an an amazing uh, bipartisan um, expression. Of of concern uh, about this experiment called called America, and then also around eighty percent depends on what day of the week it is. Around eighty percent of the country thinks the country is on the wrong track, and and so yes, um, this is this is this is an important election. Um, but also, I, I think you have a that that it, those stats I just gave um, are an expression of how many people are frustrated and concerned. Um, with with the status quo and and where things are and so um, this is why it's important for people to go out to vote it seems that um, you know this election cycle uh, we're going to be near or it seems it appears that turnouts going to be near a um, uh, highest turnout in a midterm election uh, similar to 2018 uh, but unfortunately turnout in 2018 was only 49 percent and so I, I would I would not say that that is a metric. Um, that we should be patting ourselves on the back for. Uh, we need more people to, to participate. And, and I have a theory that why is 50% of the country not participating? Um, it's because they're frustrated um, and that there's, there's no product that they want to go out and purchase, and that, in essence, going out and voting for somebody. Um, and so I think there, that's, that's a, another lesson we should be taking away from, from, these converse, from, from this, this election cycle.
2: Is election denialism not trusting the results of the election or saying that the election was in fact stolen, the 2020 election, when it wasn't, is that hurting American democracy? As the intro showed, people have lost faith in the government, Um, faith and trust in American institutions is at an all-time low, Uh, trust in American media is at an all-time low um so does election denialism play into that and make it more difficult to defend and to ensure a strong democracy
3: uh, of course uh, election denialism uh, further erodes trust people have in, in 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 their office right um you know things like criticizing um, you know, every elected official and referring to things, you know, as the swamp and and all of this, it, it continues to to erode that trust. And it's being eroded by people that are actually in office. And guess what? If it's so bad, why don't you do something about it? Right. And and so so look, and I've been clear that the 2020 election was one of the, the freest and safest elections um in, in our history. And when you have elected officials that are in office that continue to question that, um, they're contributing to this environment, um, this toxic environment that has led to uh, so many groups, different um, you know political beliefs, um, believing that democracy may not exist, and also thinking uh, the the country is is ultimately um, on the wrong track. And and so, uh, but but you know, it, it, there's other you know this this erosion of trust. In our government is something that happens on many different levels, and and as someone who spent you know 22 years connected to the national security community, um, this is something that our adversaries are trying to do. Uh, you know, we can go all the way back to, to 2016. Um, there was erosion in trust in the 2016 election, um, and and the inference that the the, the, the Russians were were involved, and in, and in what they were trying to do. Was erode trust in our institutions, make us question each other, make us question um, our forms of government, make us question uh, the validity of our systems that we've had in place for 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 almost 250 years. And so, when we contribute um, to this this erosion, um, that that it, it benefits our our adversaries. And and let me be clear: that we have problems, right? We have problems in our country that need to be addressed. Um, we have elected officials that aren't doing their jobs, we have inefficiency um, within, you know, our federal government, all those things are true, but we should be focusing on solving the problem. Because why does all this matter? If we want to keep this experiment going, we have to get a few things right. And this is no longer about just us achieving our best selves. Uh, we're in a new Cold War with the Chinese government. And if and the Chinese government is trying to surpass us as a global superpower. and And I think we have, in essence, 10 years to get our act together. So if we can't, if we continue to contribute to this, this, this trust deficit, um, then we're not going to be able to do the things necessary uh, in order to win this, this, this new cold war and ensure that America stays the, the, the global superpower for the rest of the century.
2: Yeah, such an interesting perspective. Um, another thing that I want to talk about that's in the news is political violence. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, we know about the attack against Paul Pelosi, the husband to the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. Um, But I've been I cover Congress. I've been talking to a lot of members and a lot of aides. And um, they admit that they're scared. Um, Threats against them and their families have increased dramatically, um, not just since January 6th, but even before that, too. Um, And one member of Congress, Representative Debbie Dingell of Michigan, she told me that she worries that people are not wanting are going to want to run for office, serve in the government because it is just becoming too dangerous. What is your response to that?
3: Well, I can say, I, I want to say it was maybe my last two years in Congress, um, this was even before um, the before um, Congressman Steve Scalise was shot, um, I had to move my office um, because we had to be into a more secure location because the threats that not only I was getting, that my staff was getting as well. And so, you know, for me, like, I, I spent a decade in the CIA, my job was, you know, figuring out how to protect myself, I feel I feel comfortable protecting myself, but my staff who's in, in you know, so important um, to providing the services that we're supposed to be providing to our, our, our constituents, um, they didn't sign up for that. And so I, I had to move and move my office into a place that had um, better security. So this was something even I saw. Um, and, and let me be clear, political violence has zero Role in in our society, and we should condemn it um, whenever it happens, um, regardless of, of of who was the target of the attack. Uh, when you contribute, and the words that we use create an environment um, that that allows um, this kind of thought to to grow, and so we all have to be mindful of 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 that kind of of, of that kind of rhetoric. But you're right somebody that's thinking about i want to help my country or i want to serve my country or i think i could do a better job serving my constituents um they have to make a decision uh do i you know am i willing and, and capable of dealing with the physical risks um, that that comes on and and it's, and it's not just the physical risk um it's you know the the digital harassment um if if you will Um, when it comes to these things people uh, being in your business trying to find your your home address um, the number of protests that are happening at people's um, home addresses is is concerning um, as well, too. And and look, uh, uh, you know, we should be able to challenge our, our elected officials and the people that operate our government. And those officials should be providing the forms in which to have uh, those conversations. Um, you know, people are always surprised. You know, I, I literally held records for the number of town halls I did. Uh, when I was in Congress, and and people were surprised that these town halls were always that um, that they, they lacked, they weren't very contentious. Um, the, you know, we had an exchange of ideas. People uh, brought their concerns. People were upset and angry at at some, um, but it was always these issues were always resolved in 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 a positive way. So. It's incumbent on, on 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 folks that are in positions of power uh, to make sure they're accessible, um, because that can lower some of the, some of the blood pressure um, and tension. But but look, political violence absolutely no absolutely no role in our society.
2: Does, does the rhetoric need to be scaled down? Does there no longer need to be political advertisements of people shooting guns and pictures of? nancy pelosi um from that level all the way to the campaign trail um where you know i there's a long list of violent rhetoric coming from elected
3: officials yeah and and and, leanna you know i'm, I'm sure some of that stuff exists and yeah you know anytime you're um intimating violence right like that is not um, that is not something that uh, if you're in a position of authority, you shouldn't be intimating violence. I don't think anybody should be intimating violence on 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 someone, right? And 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 that that, that there's a you have a responsibility that uh, is your actions contributing um, to the environment in in which we're in which we're in. But yeah, things that show someone shooting like like that's that's crazy um, and, and and shouldn't be happening.
2: Yeah. Do you miss Congress?
3: Um here's what I miss. Right? The the part that I miss was helping people, you know, deal with challenges. M- most of us go through our day and realize and and you don't have you don't need the government to help you, right? But that veteran who's having a problem getting an appointment um, in the VA or their kind of, of uh, support that they need um, you know, to be reimbursed is taking long as having an impact on their ability to, to pay their bills or a federal employee uh, that gets wrongly denied um, a workman's comp and is potentially going to get evicted from their home, right? These were these were the kinds of of things that we we dealt with all the time, and and I, I miss I miss doing that. Like that was, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, you don't read about that, you know, people don't talk about those things on the news, or, um, but but that was the part that for me was was super was super fun. Um, That's the you know, I-
2: service part. That is the part where you're helping people representing the government, correct?
3: no absolutely and 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 sometimes we forget and, and folks in the office sometimes forget we're a customer service organization right and and we we are providing a service and and guess what um if if you know i got to wait in a long line to get something that i need i get frustrated right and so so that's the you know we got to remember that part of some of the frustration people have is is why does it take so long to do something why does it take so long to renew your get your passport renewed right like it it, it should be simple and we should i shouldn't have to go to the post office to do something like that now that's a, that's a minor that's a very minor example of 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 something that I'm that I'm talking about but but yes we in in and, and, and sometimes we got to step back and say what is the role of the government the role of the government is to one defend Um, Our our homeland to uh, make sure that inner interstate commerce is able uh, to happen and and enforce our laws and ensure people um, have the ability to, to reach their potential. Right. And so so, you know, this is this is a noble noble cause um and and we have a responsibility, and those in in senior positions need to make it easier uh, for people to to be able to to join and and get involved in the government. Like why does it take twice as long um to hire someone in the federal government as it does in the private sector? That makes absolutely no sense and and shouldn't happen. And so there's a number of ways that we can make it easier for for people if they want to serve their government.
2: And I only have twenty seconds left, but I have to ask you, you've spent most of your career in public service, CIA in Congress. You're still only in your mid-40s. Are you going to go back to government in some way at any point?
3: If I can serve my country again, um, I'd, I'll obviously evaluate it. My career is probably not over.
2: <laughs> Great. Well, heard. thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And we will be right back with part two of our program. Stay tuned.
3: The
0: following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
4: Thank you all for joining us. My name is Lana Wong, and I'm pleased to be here today in conversation with Shane Canfield, the CEO of Worldwide Assurance for the Employees of Public Agencies, also known as WEPA. So Shane, we are tight on time. Let's dive straight in. Here we are in the middle of another election season. In just six days, Americans across the country will cast their ballots in the midterm elections. So as we face another transition of elected officials, what do you think is something people often forget?
1: Uh, Thank you, Lana. I think some people equate political elections with civil service. I think it really needs to be Separated in the sense that career civil servants serve whatever administration is in power, they are doing the work of federal government which only the federal government can do we're talking about you know, everything from park rangers to fDA inspectors, scientists at NASA and NIH the federal government workers, people that stay with the federal government for years, often their entire career they stay out of the political fray and do the work of the nation. Without them, the the government and the country wouldn't run.
4: Absolutely, and I don't know if our viewers understand just how many people are currently employed as civilian feds.
1: Right now, uh, it's uh, over 2 million uh, full-time employees uh, that expand an additional 600,000 postal workers. And that doesn't even count The military. So it's the nation's largest employer by far, and uh, they are dedicated to doing their job regardless of which political uh, party happens to be in charge, what their tendencies are, what their views are towards civil service. They're there to do their job, and they're truly committed to doing it.
4: And so you mentioned the word service, which is often something we think about uh, in relationship to the armed forces and to elected officials. But when it comes to civilian federal employees, what does that word mean for you?
1: My father's generation was uh, very responsive to JFK's ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. This was truly inspiring. I I was a child, but I watched it happen. Thousands of people joined uh, the federal government and stayed with it for uh, decades. That calling is something that's unique to federal service, and we need to keep reinvigorating that.
4: I love what you said about your father and the calling of his generation into a career of service, but let's talk about what it looks like today. Uh, For those currently serving, what does the future of the federal workforce look like? And do you think the pandemic has left a lingering impact? What's the most important thing you think our viewers need to know?
1: I think right now the current administration is uh, very much in favor, uh, they're very friendly civil service, we'd love to see that. And the baby boomer generation is going to retire. The pandemic slowed that down with working from home. uh, Also, the intersection with uh, difficult markets meant people's retirement plans, they'd like to recover from that, but they will leave in the next decade, we're going to see a large knowledge loss and experience loss in the federal government. So there's a technical piece of how do you make sure that knowledge is transferred? And then we go back to the inspiration piece, the JFK piece. How do we inspire? How do we get younger folks to know that civil service is a job like, unlike anything else that they can be a part of and make a difference in this country?
4: Yes. And your organization, WEPA, was founded especially for civilian feds, I understand. So as civilian feds help to carry forward the government through another season of transition, what is WEPA doing to care for them?
1: WEPA was founded by executive request from P- President Roosevelt uh, during World War II. This was before the federal benefit plan even existed. And we had Tens of thousands of civilian federal employees traveling in war zones. That was excluded from life insurance policies. And therefore, uh, loved ones at home did not have life insurance protection. So, WAPO was founded to fix that problem. We still have the same mission today to serve them, principally with group life insurance. And I, I would say our mission is to make sure we have a Very solid value, great rates, a great product for current civilian feds, but also going out decades in the future, because we're making promises to uh, employees and families that last 10, 20, 30 years in the future. So we have 46,000 people on the planet's growing. With those kind of numbers, uh, our stability, our value just increases.
4: That's great. And so on that note, thank you, Shane, for this conversation. Thank you to our viewers. And thank you also to the civilian federal employees who have chosen to pursue a path of service.
0: And now back to Washington Post Live.
2: Welcome back to Washington Post Live for the next part of our conversation about public service. Again, I'm Leanne Caldwell, an anchor at Washington Post Live and co-author of the early 202 newsletter. Now I am joined by Jennifer Gerby, the Acting Director at the Advanced Research Projects Agency at the Energy Department, and Varun Sivaram, who is the Senior Advisor to Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry. Thank you both so much for joining us. Great to
4: be here.
0: Thanks for having
2: me. Great. And of course, to our audience, we want to hear from you. Please tweet at us at PostLive if you have any questions for our guests. Now, Jennifer, Verne, you both opted to work in public service as part of the government. Can you each tell me, tell us about a little bit about your job on a daily basis and why you think it's so important, really? Jennifer, if you want to start. Uh, Happy to. uh
5: You know, I came to RPE from industry. It's a very unusual place in that we are all on term limits. We come for three to five years and then we leave. And, you know, we come because we're really driven by the mission of the agency and we want to be able to really make a difference. And for me, the main reason why I came was the freedom that we have to pursue what is the right thing that we should do, what is the right problem to solve um, and to actually have, you know, a very, you know, be very close to the impact of that and be able to make the decisions and have a portfolio and and have a lot of personal impact on that. And that level of freedom was really important to me. Um, and I have to say, it's it's the busiest I've ever been, but it's the best job I've ever had. And it's because, you know, I believe in the mission 100%. So it's been very fulfilling for me.
2: Great. Varun, what about Thankfully. you? Thanks,
6: uh, well, like, like Jennifer, I joined from industry. I was formerly the chief technology officer of India's biggest renewable energy company, Renew Power, And I joined because this is a once in a generation opportunity to reset how the United States was viewed on the world stage on climate change. After four years of the Trump administration, it took President Biden and John, Secretary John Kerry uh, to really get us back in the game. On any given week, um, I may be following Secretary Kerry around to a different country of the world. Uh, I leave in a couple days with him for Egypt, where we'll have uh, this year's climate uh, International Climate Conference, COP 27. So working with Secretary Kerry has been an opportunity, not only for us to rejoin the Paris Agreement, which President Biden did on day one of this administration, But also to pursue a range of initiatives at home and abroad that put us back in the game. Some of the most consequential climate legislation in my lifetime, certainly, passed under this president. And what we're doing on the international stage to help countries like India and Indonesia and South Africa and Vietnam is going to lay the groundwork for a clean energy transition all over the world. And that's important to me because I spent time in India, I've spent time in the private sector, and like Jennifer, I'm a scientist. And it's critical that we start to bring these perspectives in to really refashion the world economy.
2: Jennifer, something you said you said that you have so much freedom to explore and to do new things. There's a stereotype that in government, there's very little innovation, there's very little experimentation. Um, But you're saying that that's actually not the case. You have the ability to try new things and to take risks? Yeah, I mean, the very sort of foundation of how we were set up
5: as an ARPA enables us to do that. I mean, you have to have the right structure in your organization to allow people to take that kind of risk. You have to have people that are comfortable with doing that and very energized by doing that. And, you know, the way that we are set up and that we're sort of, you know, we're a little bit separate. We're sort of our own thing. Again, we're off roadmap. We do, you know, coordinate and communicate with other parts of the DOE. But what we do is generated internally from the bottom up, right? We don't have roadmaps, Um, we are very, very collaborative. We all sort of pressure test each other's ideas and do a lot of work around what should we do and why. And we're also very impact driven. But to be able to sort of accept that level of risk, you really have to have your organization set up that way to accept failure, to accept a certain amount of ambiguity, um, and we are set up that way. And it really has paid off. And the culture is amazing. And that culture is really central to our ability to take risks like that.
2: And, you know, you oversee the development of launching high risk, high reward energy programs. Jennifer, can you give us an example of one of those? Oh, there are,
5: <laughs> there are so many. All of my children are my favorite. Uh, but, you know, I can give you an <laughs> example of one that maybe is a little bit surprising. I mean, we've had things, you know, in electric aviation, and maybe more traditional power sources Mm -hmm. like nuclear and fusion. and we just put one out in nuclear waste. But, you know, we have things in the mining sector and the agriculture sector, where you might not necessarily think of that as an energy program. But when you actually look at the details, it very much is. So we have an extraordinarily broad portfolio. But, you know, it's not just traditional sort of things you might think of in terms of energy. So that's that's really a lot of fun.
2: And Varun, in your job, you know, you're with John Kerry. Climate has been such a huge priority for this administration. Um, can you talk, You and you mentioned you came from the private sector, can you talk about what has been most surprising in your job and Have there been limitations and frustrations um, that just the government bureaucratic process has prevented you from doing what you actually want to do, to reach your climate and job goals?
6: Well, look, I think um, one thing that government has to work on and that I'm very proud that we've done great strides in in this administration is work with the private sector. This problem can't be solved by government alone, certainly not. Um, it's going to be the private sector that needs to invest trillions of dollars to reshape the global economy by 2050 with clean technology. So we've got to work with the private sector. One of the things I'm proud of stuff that we did, and to your point, Leanne, this was not easy. This took a lot of, uh, a lot of effort, was to create an initiative, the First Movers Coalition, to join forces with the private sector. We took as inspiration how vaccines, for example, for COVID came into being or how commercial spaceflight by SpaceX came into being through these demand signals where, for example, we promised to purchase a certain amount of COVID vaccines if somebody invented them. And lo and behold, Pfizer and Moderna actually did invent COVID vaccines. Well, in the case of clean technologies, we wanted to do the same thing. Could we create a demand signal for the next generation of clean technologies? Many of the things, for example, that Jennifer funds through RPE. And so we brought together 60 of the world's biggest companies, Apple and Amazon and United Airlines and also Indian companies and companies around the world to make these commitments that they would purchase new technology in conjunction, you know, standing side by side with President Biden and governments around the world. And we've created a $10 billion demand signal now so that the next generation of technologies for clean cement and steel and clean Mm -hmm. aviation fuels will all come to market in this critical decade. And that's so important because if we don't bring new technologies into the market in this decade, between now and 2030, joining hands with the private sector, something the government really needs to work on. Well, if we don't do that, we really have no shot at transitioning away from fossil fuels in these sectors, heavy industries, for example, shipping and aviation, long distance transport. But if we do bring them to market in this decade, we'll see an exponential growth in the next generation of innovative technologies helping us to truly transition to net zero by
2: 2050. And Varun, you said mentioned that you're going to COP27, you're going to Egypt. Of course, that's a big international climate conference. What are the United States' goals? What do you hope to come away from that conference?
6: Well, this COP this year is really a reflection of how much work has gone into the ambition that we set out last year. So last year, the COP26 in the United Kingdom in Glasgow followed one full year of the Biden administration being in office and pushing the countries of the world to raise their climate ambition. We got 65% of the world by GDP to commit to these ambitious climate targets to keep the world from overheating from global warming greater than one and a half degrees Celsius. This year, we called the year of implementation going into Egypt. And every country has done a lot of work and no country more so than the United States which passed the bipartisan infrastructure law under President Biden to invest billions in clean technology infrastructure and the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the most consequential climate legislation in our history, practically in the world's history. Um, Thanks to these two bills, we'll have at least a half a trillion dollars going into the next generation of climate technologies. We'll have a 80 percent clean power grid by the end of this decade. We'll have electric vehicles, uh, replacing internal combustion engine vehicles, and we'll have the next generation of carbon capture technologies, uh, technologies to suck carbon directly from the air, clean hydrogen, and many more, long duration energy storage. We're going into the COP, uh, first of all, to say we're so proud of what we've accomplished, how much we've implemented, and how we're working with our partners around the world. And we'll have several exciting announcements about deploying clean energy, not only within the United States, but how the US is helping other countries deploy clean energy, particularly in the developing world, particularly in Egypt. So I think it's going to be a very successful COP from the standpoint of how much have we accomplished. Now, we're not on track, we're certainly not on track as a world to limit global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius, but Mm -hmm. we've made such important strides and we just need to continue raising the world's ambition and doing what we set out to do.
2: Jennifer, can you, since you've been running ARPA-E, what have been the most exciting or shocking innovative innovations that you've seen? (laughs) You're asking me
5: to pick my favorite children again. Um, I know, know, I know, I I, see all the hard questions. (laughs) (laughs) Let me give it an example of a a pathway that might not have seemed obvious, and I'm going to I'm going to pick fusion on that one because that's always been around like, oh, we need to get to break even fusion. We can't even, this is a pie in the sky kind of a thing. Well, you know, it took a program director at at RBE to be really visionary about it and say, well, wait a minute, let me look at this. Even if it works, it doesn't matter. It's orders of magnitude too expensive, even if it works. So you know what? We're going to be audacious. We're going to take, $30 $30 million, but put different metrics on this and say, look, if fusion's actually going to be useful for this country, you have to look at actually how much it's going to cost. And that's going to send you down different technical pathways than what exists now. So even before it worked, you know, we had a program in fusion. We have multiple programs in fusion now, and, you know, that has really paved the way to think about this as you know, a really potentially impactful form of energy. Um, and so that's an example of looking at things like, you know, very pragmatic market and cost types of issues along with the technical to say, we need a new disruptive pathway here or it's not going to matter. So I'm, you know, really proud of the agency for doing something like that. And, you know, and now that we've seen this really move forward, you know, it's a priority of the administration. Um, you know, there's this big, you know, sort of a decadal vision for fusion. And it's really been amazing to see that happen. So I like that example, because it takes something that you would think is a little bit more like a science experiment. But it's like, no, if this is going to work, what does it have to look like? And, you know, we did that. And I think that was really impactful.
2: Okay, so I'm gonna walk back even more. What is fusion?
5: (laughs) Fusion is a different way of creating energy, like the way that (laughs) the sun does. Okay, so you're sort of melding two different elements together and getting a whole bunch of energy out and so you need something called a plasma in order to do that and you have to confine it you can make this happen but you have to put a bunch of energy in to make it happen so the key is if you can actually make this happen such that you get more energy out than you put in so it's different than nuclear fission Um, it's nuclear fusion again it's sort of like making the sun but in a very small form here on earth
2: Faroon, what would you tell young people who are thinking about going into public service but know that, you know, especially at the beginning, your pay might not be as high as in the private sector? Um, What is your advice to people?
6: Well, look, particularly in our field, in climate, um, it's so important to have dedicated public servants from a range of backgrounds. You know, Jennifer and I both come from the private sector, we're both scientists, um, and that's a really important set of perspectives. If you're a young person, there's a new diverse set of fields now that you can study. There are new climate schools popping up around the country, in Columbia, at Stanford. You have a real opportunity to shape a career across these disciplines, and you should spend at least some of your time in public service. Again, I mentioned that government can't do it all alone, but the private sector can't do it all alone either. There are key roles for the government to play. For example, in climate, Uh, Today, around the world, there is a mispricing of emissions. Fossil fuels don't get priced for their carbon emissions, and clean energy therefore faces an uneven playing field. That's one role for government to step in on. Another role for government to step in on that Jennifer and I both work on intimately is there's not enough incentive for the private sector to invest in the next generation of technologies. And so government can step in and provide research and development and demonstration dollars. These are such important functions for governments to perform here in the U.S. and around the world. And if you're a young person, the generational challenge of our time is climate change. This is an opportunity to step in. Now, look, I've had an amazing opportunity to to have a role model. John Kerry who has a 50 year career of public service. We're going to need that next generation of us to step in. Will we spend 50 years in public service? Maybe not, but I I probably won't. there is now an opportunity for us to really have hybrid careers. Um, Leanne, you mentioned, you, know, you may not get paid very much in the government, but the impact you have in the, in the years you do spend in the government can be outsized. And there's an opportunity now, you know, I know climate, but, but across a range of fields, to go out, to build experience in the private sector and advance your career goals, to go into academia, and to come back into government and share all of the expertise you have built to solve this wickedly interdisciplinary problem, the problem that's not going away, but it's one that with the right set of minds in the private or in, in government, um, we really have a chance of of solving.
2: Uh, Jennifer, I have a question, maybe two questions from Twitter for you from Joan Mickelson. She says, what is the difference between recruiting women versus men for government roles? And her second question is, and what advice do you have for people who want to work in the government for cutting through the red tape delays? Our last guest, former Congressman Will Hurd, did make the point that it can take twice as long to go through the hiring process in the government than it does in the private sector. Jennifer, do you have thoughts on either one of those questions?
5: Uh, Absolutely. So the second part first, you know, we have special hiring authority at the agency because we have term limits. So we can hire very quickly. It doesn't go through the normal federal system, which is important because once you're here, I mean, five years goes by like that. So we're always hiring. uh, It's it's a very unusual model uh, in the government, but for us, it's a very good fit and it works very well. And I think this is something that is good for folks to consider when it meets the needs, you know, of where they're working and what their mission is. In terms of, you know, recruiting women versus men, or I would say diversity in general, you know, that really is a challenge. And, you know, it's partially a challenge because, you know, we are public servants. Um, You know, we're very thankful for what we do get. I'm not going to pretend that our salaries are competitive with the market, you know, especially at the senior end of the scale. You come because you have a passion for the mission that's harder for you, the earlier career you are, just to make that work financially sometimes for some people. Um, so you have to realize that, um, you have to be flexible. You know, one of the things I did was, especially with COVID going on, is we do have some program directors now and tech to market advisors who are remote and they come in one week a month. And that has enabled people to take a job here that would would not have otherwise been able to do that. So I think, you know, increasing flexibility but also listening and asking people what they need what would it take for you to be able to do this job if you can't do it now can i reach back out to you in a year or two we have people come in that we've been talking to for five years or even longer when finally the time is right for them so i really do think that you have to listen and ask people how can we make this work for you i think that's important
2: and Varun, final question we only have a few seconds left but um, how long do you think you're going to stay in government service and how fulfilling is it compared to your last job running the India's largest um, renewable energy company?
6: Well, look, e- each of these roles scratches a different itch. I hope to spend the rest of my career, uh, you know, attacking the climate problem from the public sector. I plan to be in, you know, many more government roles, uh, but also from the private sector. Um, And in academia, you know, one story I'll share for those thinking about if you're particularly if you're a technical person. When I was doing my Ph.D., I was doing a Ph.D. in physics in a next generation solar technology. And I would make solar cells that were like as big as your fingernail. And they rarely worked very well. My next job, my first job out of Ph.D. was to work in the city government of Los Angeles, where our goal was to keep the lights on for the city uh, through its energy utility. And I took a helicopter ride over to see one of the world's biggest solar farms at the time out in the Mojave Desert. And it got me thinking, there really needs to be somebody who connects these worlds between building these fingernail-sized solar cells that rarely work and scaling them up to the point where they could be in a solar farm that only a helicopter can see because it's so big. And bridging that gap is going to require a special hybrid of person. I want to be that person. I loved working in India because we were scaling up clean technologies in the fastest growing emerging economy with the largest energy demand growth. It's so important to solve climate there. And I love working in the U.S. government because we have a special ability to develop the technologies that the rest of the world can use and a leadership that President Biden's shown. And I think Mm -hmm. structuring a career like this, where I keep bouncing back between countries and between sectors, is not only going to be fulfilling for me, I think it's my best shot at having real impact at solving the climate crisis. And I I really urge anyone else uh, uh, to think about doing the same.
2: Great. Thank you both so much for your time today. We are out of time, um, but the conversation was wonderful. And I have to read your title, so I apologize because they're so long. Jennifer Gerby, the Acting Director at the Advanced Research Projects Agency at the Energy Department, and Barun Sivaram, Research- Senior Advisor to Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry. Thank you both so much. Thank,
6: Thank you for you- having us.
0: Thanks for listening. and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.